Greetings, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me on Satiate today. I'm Sue Van Rays, functional nutritionist, food psychology specialist, author, and founder of Boulder Nutrition here in Boulder, Colorado. I also lead women's wellness and yoga retreats, both locally and internationally. Food has so much power. Power to nourish, to strengthen, and to connect us to one another. That said, it's a true rarity to find a woman today who is at peace with her plate, with how she eats, how she looks, and how she feels in her body. Satiate is here to engage in meaningful conversation about what it really means to have food and body freedom, to show up in life as who you really are, to trust yourself, tracking the intelligent design of your body, and to prosper with embodied self-care in doing so. Satiate offers you functional nutrition and food psychology insights, some of my favorite special guests and experts from all over the world, and some personal insights and anecdotes that can act as salve for your soul. If you love this podcast, I would be so grateful if you head over to iTunes, subscribe, and leave a review. That way, you'll be sure to be alerted when new episodes are published and help me spread the word so that other women in need can find their way to this important conversation. Thank you so much for being here today, and I hope you enjoy today's episode of Satiate. I'm so excited to share my friend Gina Cox with you today. We met last year in a mastermind for nonfiction authors, and we have been working together and collaborating and masterminding and learning about each other's work ever since. And I feel that her work is so relevant to these tumultuous times in the world and how we can all show up as leaders in our own lives with just a little bit more awareness. Gina Cox is an organizational psychologist, executive coach, and speaker. She coaches corporate leaders, startup executives, and board directors to enhance their leadership impact in disrupted workplaces and build the inclusive organizations their employees deserve. Gina is active in leadership roles in the Society for Industrial and Organizational Psychology and national publications, including Harvard Business Review, Fortune, and Fast Company, which have all featured her ideas. Gina Cox holds a PhD in industrial and organizational psychology, and her new book, Leading Inclusion, is fresh off the press this October, so feel free to check her out, Leading Inclusion, Drive Change Your Employees Can See and Feel by Gina Cox, PhD. So onward with today's conversation, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did hosting this fabulous woman and her beautiful content. Hi, Gina. It's so great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, Sue, it's a pleasure. I've been looking forward to this conversation. 
Me too. And I am so excited about your upcoming book launch and all that you have going on, which we'll spend some time diving into today. But congratulations and so excited for you. You know what? I can tell you this. Writing a book is one of those things where no matter what anyone tells you, it takes way longer than you can ever imagine. Luckily, I'm an eternal optimist, but still I was surprised. <laughs> I I can relate because I'm definitely in that process as well, but uh, it's probably going to be um almost a year, a little more than a year behind you. But anyways, it's definitely one of those things that cultivates a lot of patience yes. and a lot of diligence. <laughs> but it's also very rewarding. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, why don't we start with a little bit about your story? And really, I know because we've spoken offline many times about your work and what you do and this exciting book, but tell me a little bit about your story and what led you what led you to write the book, Leading Inclusion? Oh my gosh, you know, there are so many aspects, uh, so many angles, so many different perspectives uh, that brought me to the point where I decided to write the book. But I would say the precipitating event was the spring of 2020, where, you know, we were all in the middle of a pandemic. However, unfortunately, I had, I had been having this experience where I was watching the news and I saw Ahmaud Aubrey get killed in... Um, I think that was in January, February. And then in March, Breonna Taylor was killed. And then in, in May, George Floyd was killed. And by the time George Floyd was killed, I was a basket case. I had been a basket case. Because up until now, some of these events were very sort were more abstract and somehow I was a little emotionally distant from them for whatever reason, I'm being very honest. But when that particular period of time, when those things happened in that period of time, I, I changed. And I looked in the mirror and I said, you know, Gina, you're a bit of a fake, a fraud, a phony. You spent a lot of time helping other people deal with these issues and telling leaders what they should do. But, you know, on a personal level, you haven't been um, using all of your experiences and your knowledge, you know, to really make the kind of difference where you can look back and say, you know, I'm part of the solution and, and not just an observer. And so I made a commitment in that moment that I would do something, but, you know, I'm maybe not an activist and I'm, you know, I'm not necessarily marching in the streets. What can I do? I can write a book for leaders to really help them understand, as the subtitle says, that in the workplace in particular, or in, in social situations with groups of people, if you really want to think about inclusion and be effective and make a difference, you really need to understand what people are feeling, you know, and they need to see and feel whatever changes it is that you're making that you think are intended to, to drive inclusion. So, that was why the book is, has a name that it has. That is why I started to write it uh, when I did, which is really in the spring, summer of 2020. Um, but then the other thing, you know, I think that is important is I, I didn't grow up in the United States. I was born in, in England. I grew up in the Caribbean and Barbados. And I came to the United States when I was 20 years old already. So I was kind of fully formed. And one of the very interesting things I think about being an immigrant that is useful for you to know relative to this conversation is that I already had an idea of who I was when I got here, but then I had to change. I had to sort of learn how to be 
a black woman in America because they are just, there were certain, I didn't know what certain things meant or why people thought I would react a certain way or whatever. And that is actually a good thing in that now at this point in my life, I walk into situations and I am able to sort of observe, I think with a, a, a degree of clarity, I might not have had, had I been born in the United States. So anyway, all of that relates to why I wrote this book. It's really incredible to have that perspective of being from a different place, being a young adult woman, yeah. black woman, being relocated to the US and then having this ability to be able to compare. I don't think that many people, especially within the work that you're doing now have really that clarity of distinction Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I was curious about in the preview of your book that I was so graciously sent was some of the societal expectations that you noticed when you moved to the U.S. And I would be curious to hear a little bit about some of the distinctions you noticed that mm -hmm. kind of informed maybe inspiration for the work you're doing. Oh, sure. And to be very clear, I came to the United States because this was the place where I was going to pursue a PhD. United States is the land of opportunity. They're all of the good things that you will hear people say about this country. Those things are very real and they're very true. The piece that I'm talking about that has to do with sort of adjusting to social norms was something that you can't really prepare for because you don't really know what something feels until you walk into it. And I would say that some of the things I noticed right away that were very different were, were general. For example, where I grew up, uh, when, you, when you walk into a room or you walk down the street, you make eye contact, you say hello to everybody. When you leave a room, you say goodbye to everybody. And I remember trying that here in the United States and people looked at me like, why is she invading my space? What does she want? You know, it was, it was, that was different. That, that's an important ex example of a general difference. But more specifically, one, the things that were different were I noticed that um, people didn't make eye contact with me. I noticed that in, in situations I would be, especially, this was a weird one, in retail situations, people would come up to me and ask me really bizarre questions, assuming always that I was working there. You know, I would be shopping, you know, looking for something and people would just tap me on the shoulder and say, do you know where I can find a green version of the skirt or whatever the thing was? That was a new behavior. I was like, why are people, oh, I get it. So there was that. Um, you know, there, there, there are things that also have to do with noticing that what I, what I call the absolute social segregation by race in the United States. I don't think it's so clear uh, to Americans, for example, but it is so vivid to someone who comes from another place and you see people living in different groups. And, and you, why is that? Oh, I see. It's really socioeconomics that, you know, causes these divides. But those divides are important and they're part of my story of the story I tell in this book because I'm convinced that if, if we could get people physically closer together we could get them emotionally closer together mm -hmm. and the workplace happens to be the one place where we all come together you know all different backgrounds wherever we come from we, we somehow end up together and we figure out a way to work together but we can make it even better. We can make it more sincere, more authentic. Uh, and then we can take all that warmth that we build up in the workplace back to our schools and our churches and our playgrounds and our libraries. Like that's my fantasy. Um, 
but those are differences that I'm, that also exist, I'm sure, in other countries for different reasons. But in the United States, those were the ones that were like, I, they were so vivid. And to this day, they still are. Wow. Yeah. Once again, like just such amazing opportunity for insight that is a rarity mm-hmm. for being able to have such a robust perspective on mm-hmm. the, the nuances within these different cultures. That's and right. I love that you can talk about the workplace as this place we all come together, because right when you were saying that, I was noticing this thought of like people with all different backgrounds, with all different jobs in some cases, and really with all different, you know, kind of motivations in their life and purpose-driven work mm-hmm. and everyone just kind of showing up as they are. Yep. And then, you know, there's a lot of room there for a lot. There's a lot of room for conflict. There's a lot of room for connection. There's a lot of room for inclusivity, but also probably the opposite mm-hmm. as, you know, people are just kind of operating in their day-to-day automatics a lot of the time, That's right. trying to get their work done maybe not spending too much time thinking about the awareness of other people in their workplace, if they're busy with their tasks and, you know, kind of trying to get everything done. And so it's a really interesting tapestry of humankind in a way Mm -hmm. of people coming together from just so many different backgrounds. So I love that you were able to base some of this work that you're doing now from that really interesting mesh of people from all walks of life. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I'm convinced, well, I mean, scientists, biologists tell us that we're not that different. We're much more similar than we realize we are. But by somehow in our world, you know, the humans, the thing that we're best at is our brains are best at is sort of differentiating one from another. We're really, really good at saying, oh, those people are from the North and those are from the South. That person is from the West and that person is from the East. This is what we do. We look for these differences and, and I, we do it, I, I know, so that we can find some common ground. For example, if we're Northerners, we look for the Northerners. And yet we, at the same time in doing so, then that means we're eliminating the Southerners, the Westerners and the Easterners. I have clients, a client in Finland, and we talked about that. They were like, you know, sometimes I'm not sure if this topic relates to us at all here in Finland. And then we talked about it and then they were like, wait a minute. Oh yeah, we have the regional differences. We have the religious differences. We have, so humans do this, right? And um, it's just one of the things then that if we, once we recognize that we do it, our humans do it, we do it as humans. We just need to be aware of when we're doing it because this is what unconscious bias is all about. Unconscious bias is not about race or ethnicity or LGBTQ plus status or any of those things. Unconscious bias is just about the fact that if you're a human and you have a brain, our brains play tricks on us. Brains, which are designed to sort of help us quickly make judgments, also sometimes cause us to make misjudgments, to make errors in judgment. And we do it so quickly we don't even realize that we've done it. And so once, when, when this continues, what, what you realize is, wait a minute, I've got to be thoughtful and purposeful sometimes to make sure that I am not inadvertently, for example, walking up to a, a woman that I knew in my workplace, um, didn't know her well, but I had seen her for you know a long time. And one day I woke up to, walked up to her and I said to her, when is when, when are you due or something along those lines? I would never say that today, but I walked up to this lady and I said that to her. And she goes, what do you mean? I said, she goes, I'm not having a baby. 
And I remember, I'll never forget that. That happened like 20 years ago. I'll never forget it. But in the, in the two seconds it took for my brain to see this person, to figure out whatever, to make a judgment, out of my mouth came this thing that I said that offended her. It's one of, it's the example I always remember when I say, look, this is what we do. And so you don't have, it, I didn't have any negative intention. I just right. was, yeah, it was, I did it. So now what do I do in this case? And in most cases, I, you know, I, I apologize. And then I looked to find her the next day so that I would intentionally make eye contact. So she would know that I wasn't going to avoid her because really I had no, you know, and so it's, it's us humans and our, our little brains that play tricks on us sometimes. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, not to deviate from our topic too much, but, you know, we see this in, I think middle school is the worst. <laughs> middle school and high school, you know, where kids are constantly segregating around yes. what feels comfortable, mm -hmm. um, sometimes around race, sometimes oh, around um, you know, wealth, and sometimes around what's the trendy look that everyone has within That's their right. friend group. That's or right. who knows what else. But you know, it starts in this really young age and it is so there. And I think as we mature, it might change form and look different, but it's really interesting that you can acknowledge and that we can acknowledge this humanness about it. That's right. And the humanness of when we say the wrong thing, which most of us can attest to in time where we said the wrong thing and felt that's horrible. Right. Mm -hmm. And that that's all part of it. And one of the things that I really noticed when the Black Lives Matter movement was really resurfaced in, the, in 2020 was there was a fear, which I could speak to myself, and I did in a couple of newsletters I wrote, but also I noticed other people speaking mm -hmm. this. It was like there was a fear of saying the wrong thing. Yeah. And so yeah. there's this yeah. um, very easily quieted voice within me, at least, until I put it on paper saying, I don't want to say the wrong thing. Yeah. That kind of helped because it gave me at least a little kind of permission to you know, just admit how I was feeling. But mm -hmm. I just wonder, there's probably a lot of people in the world who silence themselves because they don't know what to say. And saying the wrong thing is scarier than saying nothing, right? Yeah. So, so uh, this is absolutely true. And actually, it's the reason why, I don't know if you noticed the design of the cover of my book, and, and I mm -hmm. hope that you notice this in the choice of words in my book. But I, I wanted to write a book for those people. Now, I, I happened, because I'm an organizational psychologist, to be more focusing on those people in the workplace, leaders. But it's really for anybody who reads this book will see the point I'm trying to make, which is that if I have the insights that I have, and I want my goal, I want to help people to understand that, they're, that this doesn't have to be this difficult, that they can do this, that they can get past those fears, which I understand where they come from and believe they're legitimate. And I want to show them how they can do that. So even the cover of my book was very intentionally chosen, apart from the fact that it shows diversity in the butterflies. Mm -hmm. the, the more important aspect of the design of the cover of my book was to say, look, this book is a welcoming book because my message is going to be, if I want to help you do better, I cannot help you do better if I'm pushing you away. If I'm making you feel worse than you already feel, that's just human <laughs> nature. Yes. Right? So. But mind you now, I have to be fair to get for, for the change, I think that we want for, for large social change to occur in this country. They are, I do believe there are some people who have to be activists and they have to say exactly what they need to say. And they have to be 100% forceful to say what they feel like they need mm -hmm. to say. 
They have to be the people like me who say, this is how we do our change. And then there'll be some people in another group over here who say, I don't even do what Gina does. I do this other thing. And this is how I contribute to the change. So in my point here, of course, is that there's more than one way, but that maybe all of these different approaches will help. However, I get the question that you're asking me a lot. I get it from leaders a lot. And actually in, in between May and September of 2020, I talked to about 30 executives, corporate executives, and I did a survey with, with approximately 521 working women of which 159 were black women. And I asked the, the, the leaders, you know, what is it that holds you back or exhibits or inhibits you from doing this work that some people call diversity, equity, and inclusion? They were very honest with me. They said, look, first of all, I'm not even sure if this belongs on my plate. Second of all, I don't want to alienate my, my colleagues and, and some of my clients by focusing on this issue in a way that makes them think that I am not being inclusive of their perspective. And then the third thing they said, this is total brutal honesty, the leader said. They said, you know what? I don't think I, I understand what it is that black, these, that black women want or that black, I don't know that I understand what it is that an LGBTQ plus person wants. I don't think I understand it. I don't get it. They were very honest with me. And I said, aha, so I have that, that, that data. And then the other piece of data I had was a survey and the women, and, and then I, re I really focused in on the black women to hear what they had to say. I really wanted to know, here's what they said. They said, I know that. They said, I know that's what my leaders and managers think. And the reason I know that is it's manifested in avoidance behavior. I feel people stepping away from me and pulling back from me instead of coming towards me. Mm -hmm. And, and they said, and I interpret that as being disrespectful to me and being disinterested in, in my concerns as I'm, if the person is my manager, right? And that was my big aha moment. So that was the aha moment where I said, when I write this book, now I know what I'm writing about. I'm trying to bridge this gap. So what does, what does one say or what does one not say? So the, here's, the, here's the reality of it. If, I, if I'm offended by someone, if someone offends me for whatever reason, I have to be the, I have to find a way to then be able to say to that person so that they know, and maybe they can do something differently. Now, sometimes there's a power imbalance, so I can't do that. But most of the time I think I can say to Sue, and here's my magic words that I always say, Sue, I bet you didn't realize this, but mm. you probably didn't realize it. But when you started to pull on my hair and ask me how I got my hair like this, I, that was really weird because I don't know why you were touching my hair. Like, this is a really good example, Sue. Mm -hmm. And trust me on this one. This is a weird, that's a weird thing to say, right? right. But that's an example. Or, you know, um, you probably didn't realize, this, this is another example of something that I, I have said to people. I said, you probably didn't realize it. But when we were in that meeting and you kept and you and you introduced me by saying, I don't know Gina, um, so I can't really tell you, you know, what you really what that immediately did was sort of set up a situation where everybody else was looking at me to figure out, well, what, what is it about Gina? You know, why are you why are you signaling signal singling her out? You didn't do that intentionally. So if I can call out what it is that's that's the challenge, then I give the other person the opportunity to respond. And the person will say, I don't know, 80% of the time, 90% of the time, I had no idea that I offended you. I had no idea that that thing I did offended you. It's only if you can get to that dialogue, I think, that you mm -hmm. can make the difference. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I, 
I encourage leaders to come to, you know, to get closer, but then I encourage people who look like me to get closer as well. Mm. It's so interesting perspective. It's just something that I think we can get really stuck in our own viewpoint. And this is a small little example, but this just happened to me today, which was, I was at the yoga studio about to teach a class and I was telling my manager at the studio that I was like, I wish I could remember everyone's name. And so I was like looking at the list of people signing in and I was really trying hard to remember their names. And I wrote down a couple names on a sticky note. And she was like, well, you know, you don't always have to say people's names in class. And I was like, I know, but I, I noticed that when I can say people's names, I feel like I have a way of connecting with them. And she said, well, here's the thing. I'm an introvert. And so when people say my name, I feel really self-conscious, like all the attention is drawn to me and I actually really don't like it. And meanwhile, I was like creating this whole story that I, you know, should use people's names more often, but I'm more of an extrovert. And so it wasn't even something I had thought about. And it was just such an interesting moment where she was like, you know, there's probably some other introverts in your class who maybe don't love being called out by name. And these tiny little moments, and I just want to recap, what was the phrase that you said that you use with people? Something you might not notice? Something? Oh, I often say you probably didn't realize it. Yeah, because I think that's a great phrase for all of us Mm -hmm. to know. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, because you probably didn't realize it is, is such a gentle way of bringing something yes. to the surface mm-hmm. without somebody then getting defensive or feeling awkward or feeling guilty or shameful for what they said or did or whatever it is. It's yes. just a great little gentle reminder. So mm-hmm. I think that's a phrase that I want to take with me from this conversation mm-hmm. and put it in my pocket for future use in mm-hmm. so many different kinds of conversations. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so thank you for that. That's really helpful. <laughs> of course. Good. Good. Yeah. So I would love to dig into a little bit of your methodology and a little bit about, you know, kind of how we can um, use some of what you've studied and what you're willing to share in this conversation um, for our own benefit around the ways that we lead in big capacities like corporate America or smaller capacities Mm -hmm. like leading women's retreats or leading our people in our community or the different ways that we show up. Even just leadership in our own homes can be um, impacted by some of what you've written here. And you describe what you call ready. And (laughs) that really spoke to me in your book. Can you and I think the acronym R-E-D-I. Can you talk a little bit about that and why it's different? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So first of all, I need to preface it by saying that, you know, I don't really believe in the thing that's called diversity and inclusion. And people are constantly talking about me and my book and saying, you know, Gina's book is, is, about, is about diversity, equity, and inclusion, like in quotation marks. And I, I push back a little bit on that because I say my book is really about leadership. Uh, and the reason I, the reason this is so important to me, Sue, and what it has to do with that R, is that forever these issues have been discussed as if they were something that you could put in a box and put over there, right? And when you put them in the box over there, they were handled only by certain people who either had had the experiences of the of the thing in the box, or somehow were endowed with these special powers to fix the thing in the box. The bottom line is, it's always been taboo and over there. 
And I don't believe that's the right thing to do when you're thinking about this stuff. So if you're thinking about it from a leadership perspective, I think that being inclusive is just a subset of effective leadership. Either you can lead 100% of the people in your organization, obviously with varying degrees of success, that's true about anything, but either you attempt to or endeavor to lead 100% of your people and then you're inclusive, or you're focusing your, your efforts on only a subset of them and the rest of them, you have no idea what their experiences are, what they want, what their desires are, or what their concerns are, and they're constantly feeling like they're not getting what they need, and in which case you're ineffective. So my book is about leadership and leadership, as you say, in any environment is, is something that we can all do. It's about this notion of where are you focusing your energy? Is it for the benefit of the whole or the benefit of a, of a, of a subset? Now, specifically about the ready um, methodology, people know the words equity. They know the word diversity. They know the word inclusion. Those are, you know, I, there's no need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. So instead, mm -hmm. what I did was I created what I called a respect first model. Because when I did the research, I understood that the gap between, you know, the leaders and those women that I told you about in the survey, when they said people are avoiding us and not making eye contact and all these things, what they said was we don't feel respected. That makes us feel disrespected. So the R in this model is R-E-D-I, R is for respect and that's respect first. And I did that intentionally because it's respect is one of those concepts that anybody can measure. You don't have to have a fancy psychometric tool in order to understand if people feel respected. You, a person can walk into a room and in two minutes, they can tell you if they feel respected. So I even put together a little scale. I said, if you wanna know if people feel respected, ask them this question on a scale of one to 10, do you, how respected do you feel? Okay, people can answer that. And then the next question is, what is it that you're experiencing that makes you feel respected? Mm, I love that. What are the things that you experience that make you feel disrespected? And then the final question is, what do you think would need to change in order for you to go from a five to a 10 or one to a 10 in order for you to feel more respected? Mm. Those are four questions that on the face of it um, can be asked of anyone at any time in any situation in writing, verbally, whatever. And a person who answers those four questions feels like they have bared their soul, like they've said their piece. Now, all you have to do is listen. So respect first, the R is, uh, it's, it's, it's a respect first model, R-E-D-I, ready, are you ready? The R mm -hmm. is for respect, the E love is it. for equity, the D is for diver uh, diversity, and the I is for inclusion. I love it. And I think it's a really wonderful piece that you were able to bridge with what your research showed you the way and what you were able to extrapolate from that with respect first, because it really is the feeling within ourselves that sets us up for either connection, success, feeling valued, feeling like we are in a place that where we belong. And also, you know, if that's not the case, like it's really hard to move into these other layers. Yes. So it makes perfect sense. It and reminds me, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and we all want this. It. We all want it. Everybody yeah. wants it. Yeah. Everybody wants it. My son moved to a new apartment this, this summer and it was, he was very nervous. It was in a new town. So he didn't really know anyone. And the day he moved in, there was, and it was kind of like this little community. It's a nice little community area. And um, he got a card in his apartment as we were moving in, there was a card on the counter 
And I, you know, I was like, check this out. They had his dog's name in the card as well and treats for her. But the card said, welcome to the place you belong. Wow. And I just was touched because it took his exhale was so vivid and his whole system relaxed. And it was just that word belong that I think it was just, it, you know, just filled my heart. Um, and I think that that's such a metaphor for how we all want to feel exactly. is that we belong. And, and it starts with respect. And here's the thing about that story that I think is also most, you know, very important to, to call out, to amplify. Somebody in that organization, in that rental company, wherever he was, had, had noticed, had figured out that it is the human connection that makes the biggest difference. And they had done something to activate the positive feelings in him. They weren't, it wasn't about money. It wasn't about, it, it was just about the words and the expression, the taking the time to be in the moment for a few seconds to open that envelope and to find this message. And how powerful that was that not only did he feel it, but you felt it as well. And now you can relate it to me. Mm -hmm. I, I think, Sue, that with all the work that we talk about, especially in business situations, we make it sound really complicated. But the same way that, that your, the story that you shared with your son, the reason that's so particularly helpful to make the point that it doesn't take a big thing is that on the other side of that, the absence of some of those little things can make a huge difference, which is why I tell people when you're trying to think of what you need to do to make a difference, try to keep it okay. So there could be big strategic decisions, but I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, try to keep it small, try to think about the individual interactions. And I say, I have three C's that I talk about curiosity, connection, and then comfort. Think about these three C's. Think about how, you know, how, and how great it is when you reach out to somebody else and they feel seen and heard and, and whatever. And then you make some connection on some tiny little thing, the note in the envelope or saying to somebody in the cafeteria line, oh, wow, I really like your whatever. I mean, it doesn't happen to happen to be mm -hmm. much. People right. react to that. And what that does is when, when you behave in those ways, when you model those kinds of behaviors over time, it makes other people and yourself more comfortable. So everybody goes, ah, I actually say this all the time, which is exactly what you said when you told me about the note. So I know that this conversation and the things I just said, there might be people listening to this who will say, well, yeah, that's a pie in the sky. That, that's too perfect. The world doesn't work that way and all of that, because there is an aspect of what I said that assumes good. Like I, I come from a point of view where I assume the world will, will respond in a positive way to my right. efforts to be positive. Right. So I assume that. And I know it doesn't work that way. I know people will still say horrible things and some people will still react, you know, in a way to things when they're offended that, you know, and don't give the other person a chance and all of that, all of those things will still happen. But I think that each of us at least tries, I do believe that we, that's what we have to do one-on-one -on -one in every interaction over and over and over again. Yeah. Absolutely. It's really heartwarming to, break it down to that really personal level, like what you're talking about with the respect piece, it just changes everything because it is that human need of connection and belonging that really can shift the energy in the room or in the business or in the way that we're leading that can just, I think, have a huge impact. One that we may not even realize that's happening in the moment. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I'll tell you a quick story and, and do cut me off if I get too busy here. But uh, <laughs> in April, I went to a conference in Seattle and um, I took my daughter with me or rather she went with me. She's an adult. And um, we but we took a few a few days of time together. It was great. And we went to Bain, Bainbridge Island on the ferry. Mm -hmm. Now, I had never been to Bainbridge Island, but I knew it was there. I knew how picturesque it was. We got off the, the ferry. It was it was rainy and damp and cold. We went on and the very first thing you see when you walk up from the ferry on Bainbridge Island is a sign that says something about belonging, about diversity and inclusion and belonging. And I remember looking at this, I took a photograph. I'm like, what? I've never seen that before. One word, but I knew why they had done that. Like, it's the same thing. It's like your little envelope thing. It's the very same thing because it, for anyone who is at least, who is in any way human, focused, human centered, you would see that and you would say, okay, I don't know the humans in this community, but I think they have an intention, right? So, you know, a little, little things make a huge difference. And I remember how, how wonderful it felt to have walked onto the island, although I knew the history of the island, um, and see that sign. It just reminded me of that. Exactly. It sets a different tone. It, it really does. And it's these little things that kind of enchant us along that are really impactful. I yeah. so agree. So one of the one of the pieces in your book that I'm really curious to hear more of from you today and that I know is integral in your work is you talk about these um, these three step inclusion process and the first I believe is mindset mm -hmm. and how we can explore our own beliefs. And you know, I love this. And I also would love to hear more about, you know, kind of how you frame that and what you're recommending on a, you know, more elaborate scale, because it is coming from a place of asking for some level of awareness, which is an incredible opportunity for all of us to dig a little bit deeper into ourselves and into some of those cultural paradigms and old beliefs that might be embedded in our family lineage and in our childhood. And some of the things that we don't even know, they're barely conscious. And I think it is such a great place for us to individually do a little exploration. So I'd love to hear what you kind of, how you teach that and what is you know, some of the recommendations within that, that work. Right for most people. Oh, absolutely. Be happy to. So what you are referring to is what I call my inclusion MBA, mindset, boldness, and action. And of course I call it that way to make it easier for people to remember it. But, you know, Carol Dweck is the pioneer of the work and growth mindset and the word mindset took on a whole new life. And maybe she even coined it. I don't remember if she actually coined the word, but when she put growth and mindset together, everybody was like, yeah, I get that. And it's stood the test of time as a, as a, as a concept. And so I'm just taking that mindset idea and saying that in order for a leader, a person, in order to, for you to really make that difference and to really set yourself up to make the different um, difference that people can see and feel, feel, you have to start with mindset and the mindset you have to start with is your own. And as you say, you don't really, for most of us, because of how our brains work and because of the fact that we're not monitoring our brains every moment, we're just going along, the brain, our brains are doing what they do. 
we, we miss a lot of things because we're not really being purposeful and we don't want to be purposeful about everything and defensive about everything and monitor everything. But you do have to ask yourself, what is it that I do believe about these issues, about these ready issues? You gotta, you gotta know what you believe. Either you agree that something is good, that it's a good idea to think about them and to be inclusive or you don't care or you think it's a bad idea, but you should at least you know, acknowledge to yourself you know, where you are. But so then let's say then that you say, yeah, this is all good. You know, I may not know much about it. I may not spend much time working on it, but I think it's a good thing. Um, so you're in the middle, like most people. That's, let's say that's the kind of mindset you have, but you might, I have a little exercise, which I will offer to your readers. Um, I call it the skin in the game, a warm up. Uh, and it's really just a series of questions with some um, prompts and, and some coaching questions to get people to think a little bit about, wait a minute, you know what? This is what, this is my life up until now. It's not a bad thing. It just is. Maybe I don't know people who don't look like me, or maybe everybody that I know has a certain, comes from a certain background or what have you, like most Americans, nothing bad about that. But you do have to understand that because all of that informs how you show up in the world, especially if you're a leader. So mindset, the M is all about thinking about your own mindset and deciding, okay, what do I do with that? How do I, is there anything I need to do differently? whatever, to get closer to other people. The boldness is the piece that's really about the fact that just having an, uh, an inclusive mindset is not very impactful. You, have, <laughs> you probably have to make some tough decisions sometimes. You, you have to be bold sometimes. Now, the boldness that I think is most ca often called for in social situations is not the boldness of, um, it's usually the boldness of letting somebody else know when you observe something that you know is not inclusive. And most people will tell you that they observe these things, but they don't do anything about them. You know, it's, they're their friends, they're their relatives even. You know, what do I say? I don't wanna hurt their feelings. I don't wanna make a bigger mess out of a already bad, like there are a million reasons why people don't engage. But boldness is sometimes necessary. And at work in particular for leaders, it's essential because sometimes you have to let somebody go who is treating other people badly, or you have to say, this is not acceptable. We won't tolerate that. So boldness is the B. And then the last one is action. Great mindset and some boldness, but then you really have to do something and it's in the doing something. And sometimes the doing is just a simple connection, writing a note that says, this is the place where you belong. That's an action, right? That's an action. Putting up a sign and account in a community that says hate has no home here or whatever, you know, I see these little things. Those are, those are actually, um, they are, what's the word I'm looking for? They are actions. They are proactive. They're, they're putting it out there, putting the good vibes out there, whatever those good vibes are. So you have to take action. So inclusion MBA, and that's what I encourage people to think about. Mm, I love it. And it really gives you an opportunity to start with looking at yourself and doing a little bit of that inner investigation with yes. some of the ways that you may be in automatic to then take it into the boldness and the action is really a, a great order of events because it really helps to know a bit more about ourselves when we're digging into some of these um, long-standing issues in our culture and in our country that can just be so swept under the rug. So yes. it's, yeah, I love it. So obviously, you know, we're talking here about whether you are a leader in a big company in corporate America, whether you're a leader 
in your community, whether you're a thought leader, whether you're a leader in your own family or household, and ways that you want to show up and prioritize these greatest virtues, both collectively and individually. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, like, is there any final recommendations or is there any anything we missed in this conversation that you feel like it's important to include here, both within the work doing and also within what we've talked about um, today? I'll, I'll just tell you um, a, a bit of a story or share um, an observation that, that um, a friend of mine made recently that might be relevant for you know your listeners um because i i remember when we talked about this that i thought it was a, a great example so he um it was a photographer for the rich and famous you know so very expensive portfolios and everything very personalized and customized and so on and when he started to think about inclusion at first this whole diversity and inclusion thing ready thing whatever you call it it wasn't immediately obvious to him what does this have to do with me right because he, he it hadn't he did he couldn't see what did it have to do with him and then he thought about it some more and he kind of made some observations and we got to talking about some of the ways that he might think about these ideas in his business and so one of the first things that we talked about was his website and the images mm -hmm. that he uses in his marketing and because his clientele was all very rich money not an object and they were they tended to be um primarily white they were a lot of white males and i don't mean this in, this is not a this is just a description this has no value meaning or any significance i'm just saying who had a certain level of income and so what happened is he had a portfolio and then he put the portfolio on his website. Other people might come along who didn't fit that profile. I might think, well, I, he doesn't want me in his business. He's, he's not gonna use my business. And he's not even aware that someone might be thinking that. So we talked about that. And then we talked about, so we talked about the opportunity and the visual representation of your business. And then we talked a little bit more about things like, he said, I used to send out a questionnaire. I said, well, tell me about the, you know, he has this questionnaire and he would ask people all these questions about themselves in preparation for supporting them. And people got to cut, you know, people would answer the questions, but once he looked at the questions a little more closely, he realized he was asking people sort of like qualifier questions that made the assumption that the only thing that he needed to understand about them was their socioeconomic status. And when you do that, then that's a whole other set of, of exclusionary things that happen, nothing to do with race necessarily. But so, so the other, the final thing I would say then is if you, especially if you have a small business, even as a solopreneur, you might just want to think a little bit about what are the things that you might unintentionally be doing in your business that might actually be causing you to lose potential clients because they're not even seeing you as a potential place to go get their hair done, get their photography done, get their yoga, get their yoga pose on or whatever it is that you do. Right, right. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And it can be so subtle. It can be so yes. subtle. Yes. And we might not even realize it. Yeah, yeah but you'll I notice mean. it if you think about it, because that's, I think that's, if you, if you can sit, if you have a chance to sit back and think about it. Yeah. Well, thank you, Gina. All of these recommendations and all of your wisdom is so really helpful and also really important right now. And I just am really excited that it's all been brought together in this amazing book that is launching 
this month. So first of all, congratulations on that coming together and becoming the manifested form of so much hard work and so much research and all of the amazing things you're doing. Will you tell us a little bit more about your book and how to find it, anything else that comes to mind that people can use to benefit from your work? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So my name is Gina Cox with an E, G-E-N-A-C-O-X.com is my website where you can find me. If you put a slash and put the word book after that, you'd learn all about the book. But the book is available everywhere where books are sold, including Amazon.com. It's called Leading Inclusion and has the butterflies on the cover that makes it quite distinctive if you're going to look for it. Um, one of the things that I will do um, uh, is make available, I'll send a link so that Sue can include it in the show notes um, that will provide an opportunity for you to get access to a little freebie that I, I would like to share that I call the ready warm-up. I, we referenced it a little bit earlier in this conversation. Mm-hmm. And so this is just an opportunity if you're interested in getting access to that information. Sue, if you wouldn't mind uh, going ahead and putting that information into um, the show notes uh, so that people can will be able to grab it. But I'll also right. be on my website. Perfect. Amazing. So that's like a little way that they can learn a little bit more about this model of your work and exactly. also more about you. Great. Mm-hmm. Well, Gina, I'm so glad to host you here on Satiate and really just such an honor to learn from you and your expertise in this genre that is, you know, can be daunting for some people. Mm-hmm. And I feel like getting this, this episode out into the world and getting your book out into the world through all of this hard work that is just, you know, so needed. I am really excited for people to learn more and to do their own process in finding their way around this incredible model that is so valued. So thank you so much for taking the time today to be here. Well, Sue, it's just an honor. I, you know, my goal in life is for us to all get together and make the world a better place. And so if this is my little contribution, I hope that lots of people will just join me in the effort to believe that we can make it happen. I absolutely agree. What a great mission. Thank you so much. And I look forward to getting my hands on a physical copy of your book really soon because I'm a physical book reader. Even though I loved reading the the copy you sent me electronically, I I mean, and I of the grin, the butterflies so speaks to me. So thank you so much. My pleasure, Sue. It is such an honor to spend time with you here on Satiate. And may this conversation be of benefit. From my heart to yours, I wish you health and happiness for the coming season. And may we meet again here very soon. Take good care.